Chapter 6 The Sacrament of Offering Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5.2 1. Bread and wine, by bringing these humble human gifts, our earthly food and drink, and placing them on the altar, we perform, often without thinking of it, that most ancient, primordial rite that from the first day of human history constituted the core of every religion. We offer a sacrifice to God. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock. Genesis 4, 2-4. A thousand books have been written on sacrifices and sacrificial offerings, and they still produce the most varied explanations. Theologians, historians, sociologists, psychologists, all have their own points of view, endeavoring to elucidate the essence of the sacrifice, some finding it in fear, some in joy, some in lower, and some in higher causes. And whatever may be the value of all these explanations, it remains indubitable that wherever and whenever man turns to God, he necessarily senses the need to offer him the most precious things that he has, what is most vital for his life as a gift and sacrifice. From the time of Cain and Abel, the blood of sacrifices has daily covered the earth and the smoke of burnt offerings has unceasingly risen to heaven. Our refined sensibilities are horrified by these blood sacrifices, by these primitive religions. In our horror, however, do we not forget and lose something very basic, very primary, without which, in essence, there is no religion? For in its ultimate depths, religion is nothing other than the thirst for God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, Psalms 42.2. And often, primitive people know this thirst better. They sense it more deeply, as the psalmist declared once and for all, than contemporary man does, with all his spiritualized religion abstract moralism, and dried-up intellectualism. To want God means above all to know with one's whole being what he is, that outside of him there is only darkness, emptiness, and meaninglessness, for in him and only in him is the cause, the meaning, the goal, and the joy of all existence. This means further to love him with one's whole heart, one's whole mind, and one's whole being. And this means, finally, to feel and to recognize our complete and boundless alienation from him, our frightful guilt and loneliness in this rupture, to know that ultimately there is only one sin, not wanting God and being separated from him, and there is only one sorrow, not being a saint, not having sanctification, unity with one who is holy. But where there is this thirst for God, this consciousness of sin, and this yearning for genuine life, there necessarily is sacrifice. In the sacrifice, man gives himself and his own over to his God, because, knowing God, he cannot but love him. And loving him, he cannot but strive toward him and toward unity with him. But as his sin stands on this road and encumber him, in his sacrifice, man likewise seeks forgiveness and atonement. He offers it as a propitiation for sin. He fills it with all the pain and torment of his life, so that through suffering, blood, and death, he may finally expiate his guilt and be reunited with God. And however darkened and coarsened our religious consciousness may be, however crude, utilitarian, or pagan is man's understanding of his sacrifice, as well as of him in whose name and to whom he offers it, 
at its basis necessarily remains man's primordial, indestructible thirst for God. And in his sacrifice, in these innumerable offerings, invocations, and holocausts, man, albeit in darkness, albeit savage and primitive, seeks and thirsts for the one for whom he cannot cease to seek. For God created us for himself, and our hearts will not rest until they rest in him. 2. All these sacrifices, however, were powerless to destroy sin and restore the fullness of unity with God that man had forfeited. All alike, and not only Old Testament sacrifices, could be related to the words of the epistle to the Hebrews. It, the law, can never be the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? If the worshippers had once been cleansed, they would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Hebrews 10, 1 through 2. They were powerless because, though filled with thirst for God and for unity with Him, they themselves remained under the law of sin. And sin is not guilt, which can be smoothed over and atoned for, albeit at a very high price. Sin is above all the rupture from God of life itself, and that is why it is such a fall and shattering, in which all life, and not just individual actions, become sinful, mortal, and under the shadow of death. And this fallen life, wholly subordinate to the law of sin, does not and cannot have the power to heal and revive itself. It fill <clears throat> to fill itself with life again, to make itself sanctified once more. Separation, yearning, repentance remain, and man includes them in his religion and in his sacrifices. But this religion and these sacrifices cannot save man from slavery to sin and death, just as one who is falling into an abyss cannot turn back upward. One who is buried alive cannot dig himself up. A dead man cannot raise himself. Only God can save, precisely save, us, for our life needs salvation, and not simply help. Only he can fulfill that concerning which all sacrifices remain in impotent plea, of which they were all expectation, prefiguration, and anticipation. And he fulfills this in the ultimate, perfect, and all-embracing sacrifice in which he gave his only begotten Son for the salvation of the world, in which the Son of God, having become the Son of, <clears throat> become the Son of Man, offered himself as a sacrifice for the life of the world. In this sacrifice, everything is fulfilled and accomplished. In it, above all, sacrifice itself is cleansed, restored, and manifested in all its essence and fullness, in its pre-eternal meaning as perfect love and thus perfect life, consisting of perfect self-sacrifice. In Christ, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son— and in Christ man so loved God that he gave himself totally, and in this twofold giving nothing remains not given, and love reigns in all. The crucifying love of the Father, the crucified love of the Son, and the love of the Spirit triumphing through the power of the cross. In this sacrifice, furthermore, because it was made only through love and only in love, was forgiveness of sins granted, and finally in its man's eternal thirst for God was fulfilled and slaked and divine life became our food, our life. Everything that man, consciously or unconsciously, in darkness, partially, distortedly, included in his sacrifice, everything that man hoped for from them, and all that the heart of man could not receive, was fulfilled, perfected, and granted once, once and for all, in this sacrifice of sacrifices. The ultimate and most joyful mystery of all is that Christ gave this sacrifice to us, to the new humanity regenerated in him and united with him, the church. In this new life, 
his life in us and our life in him, his sacrifice became our sacrifice, his offering our offering. Abide in me and I in you. John 15.4 What does this mean if not that his life fulfilled by him in his perfect sacrifice was granted to us as our life, as the only true life, as the fulfillment of God's eternal design for mankind? For if Christ's life is offering and sacrifice, then also our life in him and the whole life of the church are offering and sacrifice, the offering of ourselves and each other and the whole world, the sacrifice of love and unity, praise and thanksgiving, forgiveness and healing, communion and unity. And thus this sacrifice, which we have been given and commanded to offer, and in the offering of which the church fulfills herself as Christ's life in us and ours in him, is not a new sacrifice something other in relation to the single, all-encompassing and unrepeatable one that Christ offered once, Hebrews 9.28, embracing and uniting in himself all things in heaven and things on earth, Ephesians 1.10, filling all things with himself, being the life of life, Christ offers all to the God and Father. In his sacrifice is forgiveness of all sins, all the fullness of salvation and sanctification, the fulfillment and therefore the completion of all religion. And therefore, other new sacrifices are unnecessary and impossible. They are impossible, however, precisely because through the one and unrepeatable sacrifice of Christ, our life itself was restored, regenerated, and fulfilled as offering and sacrifice, as the possibility of always converting our bodies and our whole lives into a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Romans 12.1 Be yourselves built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.5. New sacrifices are not needed, for in Christ we have access to the Father. Ephesians 2.18. This access, however, consists in the fact that in it our life has become offering and sacrifice. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2.21. Through the joy of offering ourselves and each other and all creation to God, who has called us into his wonderful light, the church lives by this offering and fulfills herself in it. Each time we again offer this sacrifice, we know with joy that we offer it through Jesus Christ, that it is he who, giving himself to us and abiding in us, eternally offers the sacrifice that was once and forever offered by him. In offering our life to God, we know that we are offering Christ, for he is our life, the life of the world and the life of life, and we have nothing to bring to God except him. We know that in this offering, Christ is the offerer and the offered, the receiver and the received. 3. The Eucharistic offering begins with a solemn rite that is now usually called the Great Entrance. This is a secondary name, for it is absent from the service books. It was introduced and came into fixed usage when the original meaning of this rite, as precisely the bringing of the sacrifice to the sacrificial table, became somewhat obscured, and the entrance into the sanctuary with the gifts became overgrown with the illustrative symbolism already familiar to us and began to be interpreted as an image of the Lord's royal entrance into Jerusalem or the burial of Christ by Joseph and Nicodemus, etc., We must acknowledge that the chief source of this symbolic complication of the great entrance was the gradual detachment of the preparation of the Eucharistic gifts, i.e. the offering in the immediate, literal sense of the word, from the liturgy itself, its disjunction into a separate rite, which acquired the name prosthesis or proscomity, from the Greek meaning the carrying or conveying of something to a certain place. In contemporary practice, this service is performed before the liturgy, at the side of the sanctuary, by the clergy alone. 
The participation of the laity in it is reduced to giving, outside, by the way, through third parties. Their personal prosphora, which lists the names to be mentioned for the health of and for the response of, and even this is not done everywhere. This is most noteworthy in the proscimity from the theological point of view as its order, which consists of a certain symbolic sacrifice. The preparation of the Eucharistic bread is likened to an immolation of the lamb, and the pouring of wine and water into the cup recalls the effusion of blood and water from the ribs of the crucified Christ, etc. At the same time, it is evident that this sufficiently complex symbolical rite is in no way a substitute for the liturgy itself, for which it is a preparation. Thus, the question inevitably arises, what is the meaning of these symbols? What is the connection between this, as it were, preliminary sacrifice and the offering that, as we already were saying, constitutes the essence of the Eucharist? These questions are of tremendous importance for an understanding of the liturgy, and yet they are simply ignored by our school theology. And as far as liturgists are concerned, their answers consist entirely of references to that symbolism, as though it were inheritance to our worship that explains precisely nothing. And yet, this is the whole point, in its essence, in the fact that it is rooted in the divine incarnation and in its orientation to the coming kingdom of God manifested in power, the liturgy rejects and excludes the contraposition of symbol and reality. But meanwhile, every day over the course of centuries, thousands of priests, while making cross-shaped incisions in the Eucharistic bread, recite, reflecting, with the reverence and faith, the hallowed words, sacrificed i.e. offered as a sacrifice, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is this? Simply a symbol in which, as a matter of fact, nothing happens, nothing is accomplished, there is no reality? But then we venture to ask, precisely why is it needed? Performed in the solitude of the sanctuary, removed from the presence of the laity, it cannot be attributed even to pedagogical considerations as a certain lesson. It is imperative to analyze this question more deeply, for a correct understanding of the Eucharist and the sacrificial offering accomplished therein depends on it. 4. While not reducing this question to history alone, it does require, first of all, an understanding of the historical factors that determine the development of our contemporary proscimity. The point of departure of this development is without any doubt the participation, self-evident for early Christianity, of all members of the Church in the Eucharistic offering, in the consciousness, in the experience, and in the practice of the early church, the Eucharistic sacrifice was offered not only on behalf of all and for all, but by all, and therefore the real offering by each of his own gift. His own sacrifice was a basic condition of it. Each person who came into the gathering of the church brought with him everything that, as he has made up his mind, Second Corinthians 9, 7. He could spare for the needs of the church, and this meant for the sustenance of the clergy, widows and orphans, for helping the poor, for all the good works in which the church realized herself as the love of Christ, as concern of all for all and service of all to all. The Eucharistic offering is rooted precisely in this sacrifice of love. Therein lies its origin, and this was so self-evident for the early church that, according to one witness, Orphans who lived at the expense of the church and did not have anything to bring participated in this sacrifice of love by bringing water. In the early church, the appointed ministers of charity and thus of this sacrifice of love were the deacons. 
concern not only for the material prosperity of the community, a concern that in our day is reduced almost entirely to the activity of all manner of church committees and, in effect, of the entire church organization, but precisely for love, as the very essence of church life for the church, as the sacrificial and active service of all for all, lay primarily with them. And just as in the early church the place and ministry of each in the Eucharistic gathering expressed the place and ministry, liturgia, of each in the church community, so to the deacons fell the responsibility for receiving the gifts from those who came, for sorting them out and for preparing that portion of them that, as an expression of this offering, of this sacrifice of love, was to constitute the matter of the Eucharistic mystery." The performance of the proscimity by the deacons, and not like today by the priests, was preserved in the church right up to the 14th century, as was the bringing of the holy gifts precisely by them to the presider at the beginning of the Eucharistic oblation, the Eucharistic proper. And while we still speak further about the change that occurred at that time, we can already note that if in our day the presence of a deacon in every church community has ceased to be perceived as necessary and self-evident, as one of the conditions of the fullness of church life, and the diaconate has been converted into a certain decorative appendage, particularly in the hierarchical service, and likewise a step on the way to the priesthood, then is that not because the experience of the church herself is the love of Christ and the liturgy as the expression and fulfillment of that love has been weakened in us, if not entirely dissipated? Gradually, however, this original, as it were, family practice of the participation of all in the offering of the gifts became complicated and modified. The sudden increase of the numbers of Christians, especially after the conversion to Christianity of the whole empire, with practically the entire populace becoming Christian, made it impossible in practice to bring to the Eucharistic gathering of the church everything necessary for church philanthropy and for the living needs of the community. Not only was she recognized by the government, but with all charitable activity being gradually concentrated in her hands, the church could not but have been transformed into a complex organization overcome by an apparatus, and this in itself led to the Eucharistic gathering, which in the early church had been the focus of the entire life of the church, teaching and proclamation, philanthropy and administration, seeking to be such." Good works, being gradually isolated into a special sphere of church activity, ceased outwardly to depend on the Eucharistic offering. Here, however, we approach the most important element for an understanding of the proscomity. For so obvious was the inner link between the Eucharist and the sacrifice of love, the inner dependency of one on the other in the consciousness of the church, that the preparation of the gifts, on ceasing to be an expression of practical needs, remained as a right, expressing this inner dependency, realizing this inner link. Here we find a vivid example of that law of liturgical development, according to which changes in outward form are frequently determined by the necessity of preserving inner content, of preserving intact the succession and identity of the experience and faith of the church under all changes in the outward circumstances of her existence. However complex and specifically Byzantine in many respects was the development of the proscimity, reaching its present form only in the 14th century, for us it is important that it remain and still remains an expression of that reality from which it was born, a witness to the organic link between the Eucharistic and the essence of the church herself as love, and therefore sacrifice and offering as the fulfillment in time and space of the sacrifice of Christ. 
And now, having considered the historical meaning of the development of the proskimity, we may go on to its theological meaning. 5. This meaning consists in that, first of all, by whomever and however the matter, i.e. the bread and cup, of the Eucharistic mystery is offered, from the very beginning we foresee and anticipate in them Christ's sacrifice of love, Christ himself offered by us and in himself offering us to the God and Father, and this foreknowledge, our knowing before the liturgy, and therefore signifying the predestination of the bread to be changed into the body of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ, constitutes, in essence, the basis and condition of the very possibility of the Eucharistic offering. In actuality, we only serve the liturgy and only can serve it because the sacrifice of Christ has already been offered, and in it was revealed and fulfilled the pre-eternal design of God for the world and mankind, this predestination and therefore also their possibility of becoming a sacrifice to God, and in this sacrifice finding their fulfillment. Yes, the proskimity is a symbol. But like everything in the church, it is a symbol completely filled with the reality of the new creation, which already exists in Christ, but which in this world is known only through faith. Thus, for faith, there are only transparent symbols. When preparing for the Eucharistic mystery, we take the bread into our hands and place it in the discos. We already know that this bread, like everything in the world, like the world itself, has been sanctified by the incarnation of the Son of God, by his becoming man, and that this sanctification consists in Christ's restoration of the possibility for the world to become a sacrifice to God and for man to offer this sacrifice. What is destroyed and overcome is its self-sufficiency, which constitutes the essence of sin and which made bread only bread, the mortal food of mortal man, a partaking of sin and death. In Christ, our earthly food, which is converted into our flesh and blood, into our very selves and our lives, becomes that for which it was created, participation in the divine life, through which the mortal is clothed in immortality and death is swallowed up in victory. Precisely because the sacrifice of Christ, which includes all things in itself and was offered once, occurred before all our offerings, which have their principle and content in it, likewise the proskimity, the preparation of the gifts, take place before the liturgy. For the essence of this preparation lies in referring the bread and wine, i.e., our very selves and our whole life, to the sacrifice of Christ, their conversion precisely into gift and offering. Here is precisely the reality of the proskimity, the identification of the bread and wine as the sacrifice of Christ, which encompasses all our sacrifices, our offering of our very selves to God. Hence, the sacrificial character of the office of the proskimity, the preparation of the bread as if it were the immolation of the lamb, the wine as the effusion of blood. Hence, the assembly on the discos each time of everything around the lamb, the inclusion of everything in his sacrifice. Only when this preparation is completed, when all is referred to the sacrifice of Christ and included in it, and our lives, hid with Christ in God, are placed on the discos in a way visible to the eyes of faith, can we begin the liturgy, the eternal offering of him who offered himself and in himself all that exists to God, the ascent of our life to that place, the altar of the kingdom, where the Son of God, who has become the Son of Man, has lifted it. 6. Of course, like many other things in our worship, the proskimity stands in need of a cleansing, but precisely not of its order. 
its form, but of that perception of it that has made it in the consciousness of the faithful only a symbol, in the unchurchly nominal meaning of this word. What is needed to cleanse it, or to put it better, restore it, is a sense of the genuine meaning of the commemoration which is performed in the proscimity while the pieces are taken out of the prospora, and which is reduced in the understanding of the faithful and the clergy to one aspect of the prayers for the health of and for the repose of, i.e. to an utterly individualistic and utilitarian understanding of church worship. The fundamental meaning of this commemoration, however, lies precisely in its sacrificial character, in referring all of us together and each of us individually to the sacrifice of Christ in the gathering and formation of the new creation around the Lamb of God. In this is the power and the joy of this commemoration, that in it is overcome the partition between the living and the dead, between the earthly and the heavenly church. For all of us, both living and fallen asleep, have died and our lives are hid with Christ in God. For the whole church, with the mother of God and all its saints at her head, is gathered in the discos. For all are united in this offering by Christ, who is glorified and deified humanity to the God and Father. Thus, in taking out particles and pronouncing names, we are carrying not simply for the health of ourselves or certain of our neighbors, nor for the fate of the dead beyond the grave, we offer and return them to God as a living and well-pleasing sacrifice in order to make them participants in the inexhaustible life of the kingdom of God. We immerse them in the forgiveness of sins, which shines forth from the grave in that healed, restored, and deified life for which God has created them. Such is the meaning of commemoration in the proscimity. In offering our prosphora, offering, we offer and return ourselves and each other and all of a life to God. And this offering is real because Christ has already accepted this life and made it his own. He has already offered it to God. In the proscimity, this life and through it, the entire world is realized again and again as sacrifice and offering, as the matter of that sacrament in which the church fulfills herself as the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all, Ephesians 1.23. That is why the proscimity concludes with a joyous confession and affirmation, covering the gifts and thus signifying that in this world, the reign of Christ, the manifestation of the kingdom of God in him remains mysterious known and visible only to faith. The priest recites the words of the psalm. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. Thy throne is established. The Lord on high is mighty. And he blesses God, who is thus well pleased, who desires all this, who fulfilled all this, who granted and is granting us in our earthly bread to joyous anticipate and desire the heavenly bread, the food of the whole world, our Lord and God Jesus Christ. And only now, having grasped the meaning of the proscimity, can we return to the great entrance to the sacrament of offering. 7. In the first apology of St. Justin Martyr, in one of the earliest descriptions of the liturgy to have reached us, we read, Then bread and a cup of water and mixed wine are brought to the president of the brethren. And from the apostolic tradition of St. Hippolytes of Rome, we know that these gifts were brought by the deacons. Offerant deacons oblationum. As we can see, between this simplest form of the offering and our present great entrance, an extensive and complex development of the Eucharistic order occurred, about which it is proper to say a few words at this time. For while the general course and succession of this development has been made sufficiently clear by liturgists, next to nothing has been said about its theological meaning of the uh, elucidation in it of the faith and experience of the Church." 
In the current order of the liturgy, the procession includes the following rites. The reading by the priest of the prayer, no one is worthy. The sensing of the altar, the gifts and the people assembled, the hymn of the offering, the solemn transfer of the gifts, the exclamation by the celebrant of the commemorative formula, may the Lord God remember all of you in his kingdom, the placing of the gifts on the altar, there being covered by the air and a repetition of their sensing, and the reading by the priest of the prayer of the offering after the disposition of the gifts on the altar. Inasmuch as in each of these rites, one aspect of the whole, i.e. the church's offering, finds its expression, each of them demands an explanation, however brief. 8. In early manuscripts, the prayer, No One is Worthy, and we find it already in the well-known 8th century Codex Barberini, is called the prayer that the priest says for himself while the entrance of the holy gifts is being performed. And in fact, the formal peculiarity of this prayer lies in the fact that in contrast to all other prayers of the liturgy, the priest offers it personally and for himself, and not on behalf of us who compromise the gathering of the church. Look down on me, a sinner, thine unprofitable servant, and cleanse my soul and my heart from an evil conscience, and by the power of the Holy Spirit enable me, who am endowed with the grace of the priesthood, to stand before this, thy holy table, and perform the sacred mystery of the holy and pure body and precious blood. This peculiarity deserves attention because, if not properly understood, one may find in it a confirmation of that contraposition of the priest and the assembly, that identification of ministry only with the clergy that long ago penetrated our theology from the West and, alas, became firmly accepted in everyday piety. Has it not become generally accepted to relate the words serving, performing, offering, only to the priest, and to understand the laity as a passive element in relation to this service, taking part in the service only through a pious presence, this use of words is not accidental. It reflects a gross distortion of church consciousness itself, of its understanding not only of the liturgy, but of the church herself. It finds its expression in the fact that, with each passing century, an understanding of the church has intensified in which she is experienced above all as the clergy's serving of the laity, the satisfaction by the clergy of the spiritual needs of the faithful. It is precisely in this perception of the church that we must seek the cause of those two chronic illnesses of church consciousness that run like a red thread through the entire history of Christianity, clericalism and laicism, which usually takes the form of anti-clericalism. In the present context, however, it is important for us to note that this clericalization of the church, the reduction of ministry to the clergy alone, and the consequent atrophy in the consciousness of the laity, led to the gradual demise of the sacrificial perception of the church herself and the sacrament of the church, the Eucharist. The conviction that the priest serves on behalf of the laity, and so to speak, in their place, led to the conviction that he serves for them, for the satisfaction of their religious needs, subordinate to the religious demand. We have already seen this in the example of the proskimity, where the extraction of particles during the commemoration came to be perceived not as the transformation by ourselves, of ourselves, and each other into a sacrifice, living and well-pleasing to God, but as a method of satisfying certain personal needs, for the health of, for the response of, But this example could be extended to the entire life of church society, to all its psychology. The overwhelming majority of the laity, 
supported in this, alas, all too often by the clergy and the hierarchy, sense the church as existing for themselves, but do not sense themselves as the church transformed and eternally being transformed into the sacrifice and offering to God, into participants in the sacrificial ministry of Christ. We have already spoken of this in the chapter on the faithful, and if we return to it now, it is only because with incorrect understanding of the priest's prayer for himself, with which the Eucharistic offering begins, it is possible to conclude that this offering is performed only by the priest. This is why it is so important to understand its genuine meaning. This meaning lies not in contraposing the priest to the gathering, to the laity, and not in any separation of one from the other, but in the identification of the priesthood of the church with the priesthood of Christ, the one priest of the New Testament, who through his own offering of himself sanctified the church and granted her participation in his priesthood and in his sacrifice. Thou art the offerer and the offered, the receiver and the received, O Christ our God. Let us note, first of all, that, again, in distinction from the Eucharistic prayer as a whole, which we shall see is offered to God the Father, this prayer is directed personally to Christ. Why? Because, of course, precisely at this moment of the Eucharistic ceremony, when our gifts, our offering, are brought to the altar, the Church affirms that this offering is accomplished by Christ, thou art the offerer, and that it is an offering of the sacrifice that was offered by him once and is eternally being offered and the offered. It is only the priest who is called and ordained to affirm this identity, to manifest and fulfill it in the mystery of the Eucharist. This is the whole point, the whole meaning of this astonishing prayer, that he can fulfill the service only because the priesthood of the priest is not his, not other in relation to the priesthood of Christ, but the one and same indivisible priesthood of Christ, which eternally lives and is eternally fulfilled in the church, the body of Christ. And in what is the priesthood of Christ constituted, if not in the unity in him of all who believe in him, if not in the gathering of the creation of his body, if not in the offering of all in him and in all of him? Thus, in confessing the priesthood, in the grace of which he is clothed to be the priesthood of Christ, in preparing himself to celebrate the sacred mystery of the body of Christ, i.e. to manifest the identity of our offering with the sacrifice of Christ, not only does the priest not separate himself from the gathering, but on the contrary, he manifests his unity with it as the unity of the head with the body. That is precisely why his personal prayer for himself is not only appropriate, but also necessary and, so to speak, self-evident. For, and we must strongly stress this, both the Latin reduction of the sacrament to ex opere operato, i.e., that understanding of them under which the person of the priest, as distinct from the objective gift of the priesthood, that is, the right to perform the sacraments, has no significance whatsoever in relation to their validity and their reduction to ex opere operantis, to dependency on the subjective qualities of their performer, are equally foreign to orthodoxy. For orthodoxy, this is a false dilemma, one of those impasses to which theological rationalism inevitably leads. In the orthodox perception of the church, both the absolute non-dependence of the gift that God has given on earthly human causality whatsoever, and the personal character of this gift, whose reception depends consequently on the person to whom it is given, are equally self-evident. God gives the spirit without measure. 
but man can assimilate it only through personal endeavor, and only to the measure of this assimilation is the gift of grace actualized in him. And the very distinction of gifts and ministries in the church, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, 1 Corinthians 12.29, is an indication of the correspondence of the gift to the person receiving it, the mystery of choosing, appointing, calling, which is directed to each to fulfill his vocation, to eternal desire the higher gifts, and a still more excellent way, 1 Corinthians 12.31, and if, Obviously, the church does not make the validity of the sacraments dependent on the qualities of the person appointed to perform them, for in such case no single sacrament would be possible, then the dependence of the fullness of church life on the measure of the growth of her members in the redemption and assimilation of the gifts received by them is equally obvious to her. The fundamental and eternal defect of any scholasticism, of any theological rationalism, lies precisely in the fact that it would be satisfied by this question concerning validity and objectivity and reduce the entire teaching on the sacraments and on the church itself to it, whereas genuine faith and therefore also the essence of each vocation, each gift, consists in the thirst for fullness, and this means the fulfillment of each and by the whole church of the grace that God granted without measure. The uniqueness of the ministry of the priest consists in that he is called and appointed in the church, the body of Christ, to be the image of the head of the body of Christ. And this means to be the one through whom the personal ministry of Christ is continued and realized. It is not simply Christ's authority, for his authority is the authority of love and is not separated from his personal love for the Father and for mankind. And it is not simply his priesthood, for Christ's priesthood consists in his personal self-sacrifice to God and to mankind. And it is not simply his teaching, for his teaching is inseparable from his person. But it is precisely the very essence of this ministry as love and self-sacrifice to God and to mankind as pastorship in the deepest sense of the term, the shepherd's laying down of his life for the sheep. And this means that the calling to the priesthood itself is directed to the person of the one called and is inseparable from it. And that any difference between priesthood and personality, by which priesthood would prove to be something self-contained and having no relation to the personality of the bearer, is false. For it distorts the essence of priesthood as the continuation in the church of the priesthood of Christ. The crude popular expression, as is the priest, so is the parish, has greater truth than all the cunning reasoning about ex opere operato and ex opere operantis. The church does not reject the validity of a sacrifice performed in love by any parish priest, whether bad or good, yet she knows the full, actually frightening dependence of church life on the adequacy or inadequacy of those to whom the stewardship of the mysteries of God is handed over. And that is why, at the onset of that moment in the Eucharistic mystery, when it falls to the priest to become Christ, to take the place in the church and in all creation that belongs only and personally to Christ, and which he has transferred and delegated to one, when through the hands, voice, and whole being of the priest, Christ himself will function— how can the priest not turn to Christ with this personal prayer? How can he not confess his unworthiness? How can he not pray for help 
and for clothing with the power of the Holy Spirit. How can you not give his person back to Christ who chose him in order to manifest and fulfill in him his presence and his eternal priesthood? How can he not feel precisely a personal trembling, a need precisely for personal help from above and chiefly a personal responsibility, not just for the objective reality of the sacrament, but also for its validity in the hearts and life of the faithful? For if no one is worthy to perform this ministry, it is entirely and completely a gift of the grace of God, then it is only in our humble consciousnesses of this unworthiness that the possibility of receiving and assimilating it revealed is revealed to us. 9. We have already spoken about the meaning of sensing in the services. To what was said, we will add only that the sensing during the offering of the gifts, i.e. before their transformation into the body and blood of Christ, and likewise their identification from the very beginning of the liturgy as holy and divine, expresses the very same foreknowledge of them as the sacrifice of Christ of which we were just speaking in the section devoted to the proscimity. The gifts are holy and divine, just as the humanicity of Christ is holy and divine. The beginning and gift of the new creation, the new life, in the new life, which the church is called to manifest and fulfill in this world, creation is transformed into a gift and sacrifice, and only thus can it be carried up to heaven and become the gift of the divine life and communion in the body and blood of Christ. That is why it is not to perishable matter and not to flesh and blood of mortal people that we render reverence with the incense, but to the living and well-pleasing gift and sacrifice that they are predestined to become through the divine incarnation and which the church sees beforehand in them. That is why it is not simply bread that lies on the discus. On it all of God's creation is presented, manifested in Christ as the new creation, the fulfillment of the glory of God. And it is not simply people who are gathered into this assembly, but the new humanity recreated in the image of the ineffable glory of its creator. To it, to this humanity, which is eternally called to ascend to the kingdom of God, to participation in the paschal table of the Lamb, and to the honor of the highest calling, we also show reverence with the sensing, signifying by this ancient rite of preparation, sanctification, and purification that it is a living sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. 10. This same foreknowledge, this same joyous affirmation of the cosmic essence of the offering that is beginning, we find also in the hymn of the offering, which accompanies the movement of the gifts to the altar. Today, we almost always sing the cherubic hymn. Only twice in the entire year is it replaced with another hymn, on Holy Thursday with the prayer of Thy Mystic Supper, and on Holy Saturday with the ancient hymn, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. And although, in antiquity, the church also knew other hymns of the offering, their meaning lies not so much in the various words as much as in their tonality or key, which is common to all. We can find this key best of all with the word royal. It is precisely a royal doxology, that we may receive the king of all. For the king of kings and the lord of lords comes to be slain. The offering of the gifts is understood here as a triumphant royal entrance, as a manifestation of the glory and power of the kingdom. This royal tonality is not limited to the great entrance and the hymn of the offering alone. We already find it at the end of the proscimity. While covering the gifts, the priest pronounces the words of the royal psalm. The Lord reigns. He is clothed in majesty. We hear it furthermore in the priest's prayer for himself, which we have just analyzed. No one is worthy to serve thee, O King of glory. We also see it finally in the gradual Byzantine staging of the offering as precisely a great entrance, 
through the royal doors. From here, of course, stemmed the beginning of the relatively early appearance of the explanation of the great entrance in Christian writing as a symbol of the entrance of the Lord into Jerusalem. Historians of liturgy explain the introduction and development of this royal key and royal symbolism as the influence exerted on Christian worship by Byzantine court ritual, in which processions, exits, and entrances occupied a particularly important place. While not denying this influence, which actually explains many things in the particulars of Byzantine worship, we would stress, however, that the theological meaning of this royal key is rooted above all in the church's original cosmic understanding of Christ's sacrifice. By his offering of himself as a sacrifice, Christ established his reign. He restored the mystery over heaven and earth that was usurped by the prince of this world. The faith of the church knows Christ as the conqueror of death and Hades, as the king who has already been manifested of the kingdom of God, which has already come in power. She knows him as the Lord, whom the father of glory raised from the dead and sat down at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things. Ephesians chapter 1, 20 through 22. In contrast to our contemporary piety, utterly individualized and essentially minimalistic, which easily, in the name of spiritual comfort, hands the world over to the devil, the joy over the lordship and reign of Christ imbued the faith of the early church with such strength that she breathes precisely through this cosmic joy, through the experience of the kingdom that was granted in Christ, and thus, Whatever the outward influences and borrowings, it is precisely from this faith and this experience that the royal tonality both of the hymn of the offering and the entire great entrance comes. From here stems the breakthrough of the church into the glory of the age to come, her entering into the eternal doxology of the cherubim and seraphim before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 11. And finally, we come to the great entrance itself. Let us immediately note that in contemporary practice, it has two orders. When the liturgy is served by a bishop, he does not take part in the actual carrying of the gifts, which is done by the clergy celebrating with him. But standing at the royal doors and facing the assembly, he receives the gifts and then places them on the altar. In the priestly liturgy, the priest and deacon carry the gifts, but only the priest places them on the altar. We need to note this difference because, although the idea of correlation between the place and function of each member of the church in the Eucharistic celebration and his ministry and calling in the church has been almost entirely effaced from church consciousness, for early Christianity it was self-evident. Quite often, contemporary Orthodox are extremely zealous about preserving and observing ancient rites, without, however, imparting to them any theological, or as one would now say, existential meaning early Christian consciousness saw in the rites above all the church's revelation and fulfillment of her essence, and therefore also of the essence of every ministry and every calling. In the liturgy is revealed that image of the church that she has been summoned to realize in her life. And conversely, all ministries and the entire life of the church community find their crowning and fulfillment in the liturgy. From this stems not only the symbolic, but also the real correlation between what a member of the church does in the life of the community and what he does in the Eucharistic liturgy. 
As we were saying above, in the early church, the ministers of the proscimity, the preparation of the gifts, and likewise of their conveyance to the celebrant, were the deacons. For inside the church community, their appointed vocation, their liturgia, was the ministry of love, of the life of the church as the love of all for all and the concern of all for all. That is why it was precisely the deacons who accepted from those who came into the church assembly the gifts through which the church would realize her ministry of love. They distributed these gifts and singled out those that, pars protototo, were to be offered in the Eucharistic mystery. The contemporary priestly practice, i.e., the participation of the priest himself in the great entrance arose, as we have already noted, when the deacon, or, to put it better, the ministry of the diaconate itself, ceased to be sensed as necessary and self-evident. When the experience of the church as a community, linked through common life and active love, weakened, and the community was, as it were, dissolved into the natural society, the city, the village, became a parish or congregation, those who congregate in the temple for the satisfaction of their religious needs, but who cease to live apart from the world through the life of the church. In this new experience of the church, the deacon proved to be an essence unneeded, certainly not obligatory, and with his gradual disappearance, his liturgical functions were for the most part transferred to the priest. From what has been said, it follows that of the two contemporary orders, it is precisely the potential order of the great entrance that is closer to the ancient practice and that more fully expresses the essence of the Eucharistic offering. Precisely in it is revealed the place of each, the participation of the whole church in this offering. We know already that it begins, in the proscimity, with each offering his own prosphora, his own sacrifice, with the inclusion of each in the offering of the church. Alas, this rite is also threatened with almost total disappearance today, and it needs to be regenerated in every way possible, especially, of course, with the disclosure of its genuine meaning as precisely the participation of each member of the church in the Eucharistic offering. Inasmuch as in our day the real sacrifice of the members of the church, their real participation in her life consists chiefly in monetary donations, it would be appropriate for our collection basket to be joined with the offering of prospera, to make the latter again obligatory for all. To realize this would not be difficult, let the money that each person who comes to the liturgy intends to place in the basket be used for a prosphora, and in such a manner make the prosphora an expression of his offering, his sacrifice. In any case, precisely here is the beginning of our offering, which, in the movement of the bread and cup, from us to the table of oblation, from the table of oblation to the altar, from the altar to the heavenly sanctuary, is revealed as our entrance into the sacrifice of Christ, our ascent to the table of the Lord and his kingdom. The second act of this movement is the transfer of the gifts from the table of oblation to the altar, which, as we have just seen, comprises the express liturgia of the deacons. Even now, when the table of oblation, on which the proscimity is performed, is found inside the sanctuary and not, as in the early church, in a special location called the prothesis, only the altar was called a table of oblation, the gifts are first brought out into the assembly, and only from the assembly are they brought to the sanctuary, do they enter the altar. The Greek practice of bringing the gifts around the whole church, the whole gathering, needs to be acknowledged as a better expression of the meaning of the great entrance than the Russian practice, where the gifts are only brought around the solia and then directly to the royal doors. For the meaning of this consists in the fact that the offering of each, included in the offering of all, is now being realized as the church's offering of her very self. And this means Christ, 
for the church is his body and he is the head of the church. And finally, the third and concluding moment of the entrance consists of the reception of the gifts by the celebrant and their disposition on the altar. That which we offer is now manifested as being offered by Christ and being taken up by him into the heavenly sanctuary. Our sacrifice is the sacrifice of the church, which is the sacrifice of Christ. Thus, in this triumphant and royal entrance, in this movement of the gifts, is revealed the truly universal significance of the offering, the unification of heaven and earth, the raising up of our life to the kingdom of God. 12. May the Lord God remember all of you in his kingdom always, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. These words, this commemoration, accompany the great entrance and the offering accomplished in it. The deacon pronounces them while bringing the gifts. The celebrants direct them to each other and to the gathering. The faithful answer the presider with them. Remember, O Lord. Without any exaggeration, one can say that the commemoration, i.e. the referral of everything to the memory of God, the prayer that God would remember, constitutes the heartbeat of all the church's worship, her entire life. Not yet speaking of the sacrament of the Eucharist, which Christ commanded us to do in remembrance of me, we shall speak further of the precise meaning of this remembrance, the church constantly, every day, almost every hour, celebrates the memory of a certain event, a certain saint, so that the essence of each of her holy days and all her services lie precisely in this celebration of the memory, in this constant remembrance." And if this is so, then we must ask, in what does the essence of this commemoration consist? This is necessary all the more because on this question our school theology maintains an almost total silence. It is because the very concept of memory seems insufficiently objective to this theology, whose avowed single criterion is the scientific method, and seems a surrender to the subjectivism and psychologism so hateful to science. It is because, in the interpretation and reconstruction of the faith of the church as a certain objective doctrine, constructed above all on texts, memory, and even experience in general, simply has no place? Whatever the case, commemoration, so fundamental to the life, prayer, and experience of the church, appears to remain outside of the theological field of vision— and strangely enough, this theological obliviousness leads in fact precisely to the psychologization of worship, which like a splendid flower blossoms in its reduction to outward illustrative symbolism and so greatly interferes with genuine understanding of the genuine participation in worship. If, on one hand, the liturgical remembrance, the celebration of the memory, of this or that event is precisely today entirely as a psychological, intellectual focus on the meaning of that event, which inevitably abets its symbolization. And if, on the other, commemoration in prayer is simply identified with a prayer on behalf of another human being, then it is of course because we forget the genuine meaning of memory and commemoration, which is manifested in the church. And we forget above all, because of that theology that itself is rooted not so much in the experience and memory of the church as in text. That is why we must recall this meaning before we can understand the place of the commemoration in the Eucharistic offering. 13. Thousands of books have been written from all possible points of view on memory. This mysterious gift presents only in man, and it would be impossible here to simply enumerate all the explanations and theories they provide. But this is unnecessary, for however much man would strive to understand and explain its meaning and mechanism, the gift of memory would remain ultimately inexplicable, 
mysterious, and even ambiguous. One thing is without doubt, memory is man's capacity to resurrect the past, to preserve knowledge of it within himself. But we must say precisely that this capacity is ambiguous. Actually, does its essence not lie in that if, on the one hand, in memory the past is surreally resurrected through it? In it, I see a man who some time ago passed from life. I feel in all particularities that morning when I met with him or the last time I saw him, and thus I can collect my life. Then, on the other, it is resurrected precisely as past, that is, as unreturnable, so that in being realized through my memory, the knowledge of this past is simultaneously a discovery of its absence in the present, hence the sorrow inherent in memory. For, in the end, memory in man is nothing other than the knowledge, peculiar only to man, of death, of the fact that death and time rule on the earth. Through it, man simultaneously resurrects the past, and comes to know the shatteredness of his own life, which, circling, vanishes in the mist. He comprehends the shatteredness and unreturnability of time, in which, sooner or later, memory itself will darken, weaken, and be snuffed out, and death will reign. Only in relation to this natural memory, to the most human, but therefore also the most ambiguous of all gifts, thanks to which even before death man recognizes his own mortality and life as dying, can man not so much understand as feel the entire newness of that memory, that remembrance which it is appropriate to call the essence of the new life given to us in Christ. Here we shall recall that in the biblical Old Testamental teaching on God, the term memory refers to the attentiveness of God to his creation, the power of divine providential love through which God holds the world and gives it life, so that life itself can be termed abiding in the memory of God, and death the falling out of this memory. In other words, memory, like everything else in God, is real. It is that life that he grants, that God remembers it is the eternal overcoming of the nothing out of which God calls us into his wonderful light. And this gift of memory, as the power that transforms love into life, into knowledge, communion, and unity, has been given to man by God. Man's memory is his responding love for God, the encounter and communion with God, with the life of life itself. Out of all creation, it is given to man alone to remember God, and through this remembrance to truly live. If everything in the world witnesses to God, declares his glory, and renders him praise, then only man remembers him, and through this memory, through this living knowledge of God, comprehends the world as God's world, receives it from God, and raises it up to God. To God's remembrance of him, man answers with his remembrance of God. If God's remembrance of man is the gift of life, then man's remembrance of God is the reception of this life-creating gift, the constant acquisition of and increase in life. But then it also becomes understandable why the very essence and depth and horror of sin are most perfectly expressed, not in a multitude of scientific theological definitions, but in the common popular expression, man has forgotten God. For in relation to what has just been demonstrated, to the biblical and, so to speak, ontological, and not simply psychological, understanding of memory. To forget means above all to cut what has been forgotten off from life, to cease to live by it, to fall away from it. 
It is not simply to stop thinking about God, for the militant atheist is often obsessed with his hatred for God, and there are many on earth who, while sincerely convinced of their religiosity, nevertheless seek in religion everything imaginable, but not God. It is precisely a falling away from him, from life, ceasing to live through him and in him. And it is precisely in such obliviousness toward God that the fundamental original sin of man consists and consists. Man forgot God because he turned his love and consequently his memory and his very life to something else and above all to himself. He turned away from God and ceased to see him. He forgot God and God ceased to exist for him. For the terror and irreparability of obliviousness lie in the fact that, like memory, it is ontological. If memory is life-treating, then obliviousness is death, or, more precisely, the beginning of death, the poison of dying, which poisons life and converts it inexorably, inevitably, into dying. The absence of one whom I forget for me is real. He is actually not in my life, not a part of my life. He is dead for me, and I for him. If it is God, the giver of life and life itself whom I have forgotten, if he has ceased to be my memory and my life, my life itself becomes dying, and then memory, which is the knowledge and power of life, becomes knowledge of death and the constant taste of mortality. As man cannot annihilate himself, return himself to the non-existence from which God called him to life, so it is not given to him to annihilate his memory, i.e. his knowledge of his own life. But just as man's life is separation from God, was filled with death and became dying, so also his memory became knowledge of death and its kingdom in the world. Through memory he wants to overcome time and death to resurrect the past, to not allow it to be absorbed without a trace by the abyss of time. But this resurrecting itself turns out to be a pitiful knowledge of the unreturnability of this past, of the smell of corruption that fills the world. In religion, in art, in all the culture of this fallen life, for it is the life of fallen man, life, like a wounded bird, wants to soar off and cannot. These upward flights can be infinitely beautiful, but on earth what is really beautiful is only the sorrow for genuine life, only the memory of what is lost and the yearning for it, only holy melancholy. These flights can remain in memory of man as thirst. Appeal, repentance, entreaty, and all the same in the final analysis, they are devoured by oblivion. Just as after the death of the last relatives, the last of those who remember, wild grass begins to grow over the grave over which they not so long ago sang, memory eternal. The gravestone crumbles, and it is no longer possible to decipher the faded letters of the name it bears. All anyone can make out are two terrifying and senseless dates of a forgotten life, no longer of use to anyone. 14. Here is why the salvation of man and the world, why the renewal of life, consists of the restoration of memory as a life-creating power, remembrance as the overcoming of time and of the destruction of life and the reign of death that it entails. This salvation is accomplished in Christ. He is the incarnation in man and for man, in the world and for the world, of God's remembrance, of the divine and life-creating love directed toward the world, and he is the perfect manifestation and fulfillment in man of his remembrance of God as the content, the power, and the life of life itself. The incarnation of the memory of God, if man has forgotten God, God has not forgotten man. He has not turned himself away from him. He has transformed the fallen and mortal time of this world into the history of salvation. 
he has revealed its meaning as expectation of and preparation for salvation, the gradual restoration in man of memory of himself, and in this memory, knowledge and anticipation and love, so that at the coming of the fullness of time, i.e., at the accomplishment of this preparation, man could recognize God in the Savior who had come, remember the forgotten, and in it find his lost life. The restoration, through God's remembrance of man, of man's remembrance of God, such is the meaning of the Old Testament, and it is impossible to separate Christ from it, to know him otherwise than through the Old Testament, because it is nothing other than the gradually disclosed recognition of Christ, the creation of his memory before his coming in time. And when Simeon took Christ into his elderly hands and called him the salvation prepared before the face of all people, when the forerunner John pointed him out in the Jordan wilderness as the Lamb of God who takes upon himself the sins of the world, when Peter, on the road to Caesarea Philippi, confessed him as the Christ, the Son of God, it was not a puzzling and inexplicable miracle, but the apex and fulfillment of that memory of the Savior and salvation, that recognition in which God's remembrance of man is fulfilled as man's remembrance of God. Salvation consists in this, that in Christ, perfect God and perfect man, memory comes to reign and is restored as a life-creating power, and in remembering, man partakes not of the experience of the fall, mortality, and death, but of the overcoming of this fall through life everlasting. For Christ himself is the incarnation of the gift of mankind, of God's memory, in all its fullness, as love directed toward each man and toward all humanity, toward the world and all creation. He is the Savior because in his memory he remembers all, and through this memory he received all as his own life, and he gives his own life to all as their life. But being the incarnation of the memory of God, Christ is likewise the manifestation and fulfillment of man's perfect remembrance of God. For in this memory, love, self-sacrifice, and communion with the Father is his entire life, the entire perfection of his humanity. The essence of our faith and the new life granted in it consists in Christ's memory, realized in us through our memory of Christ. From the very first day of Christianity, to believe in Christ meant to remember him and keep him always in mind. It is not simply to know about him and his doctrine, but to know him living and abiding among those who love him. From the very beginning, the faith of Christians was memory and remembrance, but memory restored to its life-creating essence. For as opposed to our natural, fallen memory with its illusory resurrection of the past, this new memory is a joyous recognition of the one who was resurrected, who lives and therefore is present and abides, and not only recognition but also encounter and the living experience of communion with him. While directed to the past, to the life, death, and resurrection, in the time of Pontius Pilate, of the man Jesus, while rooted in this past, faith eternally knows that the one who is remembered lives. He is and shall be among us. Faith could not be this recognition were it not a remembrance, but it could not be a remembrance were it not knowledge of the one remembered. We were not alive in the days of his flesh, in the time of Pontius Pilate, and therefore we can neither remember nor recall what occurred at that time. Yet, if we not only know about what happened from texts that have reached us, but actually remember and recall it, if, more so, our faith and our life in essence consists in this memory and in this remembrance, then it is because the one whom we remember lives, and everything that he has accomplished for the sake of us men and for our salvation, his life and death, 
his resurrection and glorification, he has given us and eternally gives to us, and through them he eternally communes with us. That is why it is no longer the past that we remember, but Christ himself. And this remembrance becomes our entry into his victory over time, over its collapsed into past, present, and future. It is an entry, not into some abstract and motionless eternity, but into life everlasting in which all is alive. Everything lives through the life-creating memory of God, and everything is ours. The world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all is ours, for we are Christ, and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians 3, 22-23 Such is the essence of that remembrance, which, as we said above, comprises the basis of the life of the church, and which is realized above all in her worship. The services are the entry of the church into the new time of the new creation, gathered by the memory of Christ, transformed by him into life and the gift of life, salvation from the collapse into past, present, and future. In the worship of the church, the body of Christ, which lives by his life, by his memory, it is necessary for us to again and again recall, and this means to comprehend and realize how for us, in us, and with us, what was accomplished, what was given to us, the creation of the world and its salvation in Christ and the kingdom of God, which is coming in glory but in Christ is always already revealed, has already been granted. We recall, in other words, both the past and the future as living in us, as given to us and transformed into our life and making it life in God. 15. Only in the light of what has been said can we now understand the meaning of this commemoration which appears as a sort of verbal expression of the great entrance, the bringing of the Eucharistic gifts to the altar. Through this commemoration, we include the ones being remembered in the life-creating memory of Christ, God's memory of man, man's memory of God, that diune memory which is eternal life. We return each other in Christ to God, and in this giving back, we affirm that the one remembered and given back is alive, for he abides in God's memory." The commemoration is united with the offering, and together they constitute one whole. It is its verbal fulfillment, because Christ offered himself on behalf of all and for all, because in himself he offered and gave back all of us to God. He united all in his memory. The remembrance of Christ is the entry into his love, making us brothers and neighbors, brethren, in his ministry. His life and presence in us and among us is certified only by our love for each other and for all whom God has sent into, has included in our life, and this means, above all, in the remembrance of each other and in the commemoration of each other in Christ. Therefore, in bringing his sacrifice to the altar, we create the memory of each other. We identify each other as living in Christ and being united with each other in him. In this commemoration, there is no distinction between those who live and those who have fallen asleep, for God is not God of the dead, but of the living. Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. In this is the whole joy of the whole power of this commemoration, that in including the remembered ones in the life-creating memory of God, the borders between the living and the dead are erased, for all are recognized and manifested as living in God. That is why the serving of a special liturgy for the departed, and in black vestments no less, would have been incomprehensible and impossible in the early church. Incomprehensible because in each liturgy, and precisely in this inclusion of all in God's memory, we celebrate the union of all, both of the living and those who have fallen asleep, in the life everlasting. 
In this sense, every liturgy is of the departed, and in every liturgy the memory and love of Christ that has been given to us triumphs over death, over separation and obliviousness. There will be no separation, O friends. Thus, in the commemoration of our very selves, of each other and all our life, in its return through this commemoration to God, our offering is fulfilled. The offering by ourselves of Christ and in Christ of ourselves makes possible and fulfills all our commemoration.